Welcome to Eat Well, Travel Better, the business of food travel podcast with Eric Wolf and Ashi Vale, where we help you become a better industry professional by gaining inspiration from some of the world's most successful people in the food and beverage tourism industry. With each episode, we meet these leaders and examine their secrets of success. We reveal the obstacles and challenges they have faced, along with their solutions and triumphs, and give you ideas and inspirations for many of the same business issues that you may be facing as well. And now for today's episode. I'm Eric Wolf, and I'll be your host today for Eat Well, Travel Better, the business of Food Travel Podcast. And joining me today is co-host Ashi Vale. Hi, everyone. Excited to be here. Today, we'll be speaking with Bill Baker, who is recognized internationally for his work in branding and marketing countries, cities, and regions. With more than 30 years' experience in over 25 countries, Bill has developed successful tourism and economic development strategies for dozens of locations throughout the United States and Australia. He has also been directly involved in shaping some of the most respected destination branding campaigns in the USA, including Australia's highly acclaimed Shrimp on the Barbie, which he directed for seven years. He has produced tourism strategies for the Sydney 2000 Olympic Games and has been asked to provide strategic counsel to destinations around the world, including Hong Kong, Guam, India, Macau, and Saudi Arabia, as well as Australia's global branding and integrated marketing campaigns. Welcome, Bill. Morning, Eric. Bill, it's, it's a real pleasure to, to be here today with you. Uh, I've known you for, what, I guess close to 20 years now. I met you at a conference here in Oregon, and uh, I guess even though you've got that Australian accent, you, you, you do live here in Oregon. Many, many of our listeners may not know that. So what, what brought you to Oregon from Australia? Well, my wife's family was originally from, uh, from Oregon, uh, young children we had at the time we moved back from Australia. And so uh, it's a great place to have a family growing up here. And it's also a good base for work throughout the United States. Good. Well, you were instrumental in the Shrimp on a Barbie campaign that the Australia Tourism Commission launched in this country uh, a couple of decades ago. You want to go into a little bit about the, the brainchild of that, how that got started, because when we talk about food tourism, I mean, that, that is the classic. I mean, you can almost say that food tourism marketing started with that campaign. Oh, thanks, Eric. I, I really didn't think of it quite in that way. Um, it, it, well, for a start, I didn't create the campaign. I, I was managing it. It was a very highly integrated uh, program. And what happened was that it was developed by an Australian agency called Mojo, and uh, the the person who was going to host it was uh, was Paul Hogan, a well-known identity in Australia, but totally unknown in the United States. And um, the initial idea from Mojo was that the final line in the ad was going to be um, uh, uh, slip, slip another prawn on the barbie. And uh, as you know, that wouldn't quite work. And so it ended up the shrimp. But um, over those years, I managed the campaign in North America and it really broke through and helped create an identity for Australia uh, where uh, many long haul destinations had never undertaken a project like that. And it started the whole phenomena of uh, mass tourism or larger tourism to Australia. 
And what inspired you to get into branding and marketing within the tourism industry? Well, it wasn't really a conscious decision to get into that. I was just drawn to a, a love of tourism. And uh, I started in the Hunter Valley in Australia, uh, which in those days was a small wine producing area. I think uh, we had about a dozen wineries and one restaurant and no lodging. And today it's one of the uh, most uh, famous uh, uh, wine tourism destinations in the world with over 200 uh, wineries, uh, some 30 odd restaurants and, and such. And that's where I started. And the opportunity came up for me to join the Australian Tourist Commission, which I, I took that. And from there in, it was just one great learning experience after another. And um, we were involved in many of the pioneering activities related to destination branding. Uh, the concept didn't even exist when I first started uh, with Australia. And it was through the work that we were doing, the work that Hong Kong did, Singapore, Spain, and other national tourist offices where you had uh, taking what had been working in consumer branding and marketing and applying it to destinations. And it's not always a close fit, um, but evolving those techniques and uh, when I finished my, my time after more than a decade with Australia, I took those concepts and started applying them to cities and regions and small rural communities and such like that. And I think overall in the last you know, 30 years, um, there's been many things that we can point to that have been revolutionary for destination marketing and branding and I think that branding is one of those along with the many technological changes that have happened as well. That's great to hear. Well, I've read that uh, you have a book on branding too. Congrats on your book, Destination Branding for Small Cities. And I hear a bestseller in its category for many, many years. Yeah. Can you tell us more about it, Bill? Is it specifically for cities or anyone interested in taking branding lessons from it? It's funny. It's called uh, Destination Branding for Small Cities. Um, but many of my colleagues who uh, are involved in nation branding sort of chastise or chastise me when it first came out that, you know, why why did I call it small cities? Well, the reason being that nobody's focuses on the small cities <laughs> and that everyone's talking about uh, the big places like Las Vegas and uh, international destinations and such and overlook these, these small locations. And when you look at it, that some 80 odd percent of the cities in the United States, the incorporated cities, over 80% of them are under 10,000 people. Oh. But, it's the other ones, the big ones that get all the attention. And what applies for some of those bigger cities doesn't apply for the smaller ones. Yes, certainly we can take some of the principles and apply them, but um, there's, other, many, there's many other issues that uh, come to the fore when you're dealing in a small community as opposed to dealing with a nation or a state or a, or a large region or such. So it's constantly been a matter of us adapting to suit those opportunities that, that are there in, in, in small locations. Would you be able to share a couple of lessons from the book and just what you've learned in branding? Well, among the things that's very crucial is that you, you can't go behind a curtain and create something and come out and roll it out to a community. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, People have got to feel an ownership of it from the start. This is not like owning a restaurant or a small business where you're the sole stakeholder and your decision counts. In many cases, you're having to work through committees and on those committees, there's a lot of self-interest. And if you're trying to create a powerful brand, um, 
you had to have sacrifice. It can't be all things to all people. And that automatically means that some people are not going to be at the forefront of what's being created. And when you've got competitors sitting around the table, that makes it even harder that one competitor may get a slight edge over another. So uh, quite honestly, at, at times, it, it's, it's a, lot, a lot more art than science <laughs> that's involved. And so um, that, that, that's, a, that's a difference that you have to work through. And what we do, we find so much of what we do, we have to have almost an educational component built into it. Because for many places, we're dealing with committees and people who may not have an MBA in marketing and branding, not, not that you need one, but it may not be their, their, their strong suit. But you're introducing them to uh, concepts that they haven't encountered before. Before they can make a good decision, we have to put it into the context of what it's about and why this should be important and how you actually use these things when it's finished. So it's never a linear, a straightforward process that we're always having to sidetrack to uh, make sure that all the stakeholders are up with us at the same time. Bill, do you have an example using a small destination like we were just talking about, but something that involves food and beverage where perhaps the local community was, they didn't believe that they had something worth promoting. And, you know, they said, well, we're not Sydney, we're not New York, we're not Las Vegas, so why would anyone want to come here? And you had to work with them and erase all of those, those personal agendas and so on and get them to, to come together behind a single vision. Possibly one that might, may come the, the closest to, to giving that kind of uh, a, a view, maybe in Southern Oregon, where um, there'd been always a, a very strong focus on uh, outdoor recreation and such. And what, what we encounter, when you start going out and exploring communities and doing an assessment, you're starting to look at it in a very objective way. And in ways that locals don't always get a chance to look at their own community. And you start joining up the dots. And what we started finding were lots of people who regarded themselves as artists. You know, and that extended into the, into the winemakers as well. They saw themselves as artists and creators and also in their, in their um, artisan foods, small businesses, uh, creating chocolate and things like that. And where we, we came down is seeing this artistic expression coming out in food and the local didn't quite join up the dots to be able to see it in that way. And they're now focusing a great deal more on the, the food and wine experiences uh, in, in Southern Oregon with, with, with that view. And what we were doing was, was just part of that process for them. Um, other examples it, it may not be in food and wine, but was in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, where going into that project, um, the client and even the mayor were saying, oh, we really don't have anything here. And when you look at it from an outsider, you start joining the dots together. And what we discovered was that they had nine venues that were capable of hosting over 9,000 people simultaneously. And that, that's phenomenal. They also hosted the, the world's, one of the world's largest air shows, the Experimental Aircraft Association's annual fly-in some 30,000 people come in for that and they host those. So Oshkosh became um, uh, Wisconsin's event city because of the amount of uh, venues they had there, 
but strangely, sometimes people who live in a place don't join these things up and see what a great strength they have. And I, I guess you're right that it does happen in food and wine quite a bit as well. They can't see the forest for the trees. That, that happens a lot. Yeah, exactly. Bill, you started a business in 1994. Is it Total Destination Marketing? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, that was after I, I finished my, my stint with, us, with uh, the Australian Tourist Commission and working in Australia. I uh, started working in, uh, in regional tourism again in Australia, and that's where I first started in the Hunter Valley there. But just started the company, uh, trying to adapt many of the things that we learned internationally to apply them to um, cities and, and, and regions. Um, but it didn't take very long before I was starting to get pulled back into the international arena and started working for uh, uh, international destinations as well. Um, but we started there in, uh, in Australia and uh, in 2000, uh, worked on a number of projects for the Sydney Olympic Games. And uh, at the end of that year, uh, relocated back to the United States. And so uh, we've been here now for uh, you know, the past 17 years and continue to adapt and e evolve uh, our approach to working with, uh, with cities and regions, uh, not only in the United States, but also in some other locations around the world. Bill, you mentioned that a big and potentially ongoing career challenge is remaining relevant. How do you think about relevance and how do you plan to stay relevant in a constantly changing world? Look, I, I think that that's the, the burning issue of our times that we don't speak about very much. And yeah, well, I'm you know, approaching near the end of a very long career in travel and tourism. Uh, the, the constant uh, challenge for me is to be remaining relevant in what I'm doing and understanding what's happening today and where things are likely to be moving forward. But that's the, that's the challenge that everybody has. It's the challenge for yourself. It's the challenge for, for so many of the listeners that while they're on top of the game today, things are going to change again in just a couple of years. And you have to be constantly uh, reading, educating yourself. Uh, what I've found over the years is where I was very broad in the things that I did uh, 20 or 30 years ago. These days, I'm much more focused because there's so much change going on. You can't keep abreast of everything. And you have to focus in these areas and then be highly adaptive because to make sure that that area itself isn't becoming irrelevant. And so you, you've constantly got to be uh, looking at uh, where trends may be going, uh, learning, talking to people, networking with other people. So it's a constant game for us. And you know, it, it's also relevance is there is applying to uh, organizations as well. That the life cycle that we may have had in past generations is, is not that long anymore. The life cycle on products and education and knowledge is much shorter. And to maintain a long career, uh, you have to be constantly adapting and, and learning. That's very true. We do that here in the association as well. And, you know, it's not been an easy 17 years. The, the target moves, uh, client goals change, trends change, global financial crises happen. You know, the, the needle is always moving. The target is always moving. And you, you have to be flexible and adjust. 
Exactly, Eric. And, you know, I, yeah, we, it was 17 years ago that we met. And, you know, I, I was looking and looking at what you were doing. And I, I was, you know, I, I, frankly, I wasn't 100% sold on it. But what's happened is that you were ahead of the curve. Quite remarkable. In, in, in you know, th- food tourism, culinary, that wasn't a thing. And you saw it and you were part of it. Um, but it's everybody's challenge now to, to be relevant. And I, I, reading things about artificial intelligence and robots and changing demand, they're things that I never even contemplated during my career, but they're going to be very real for current and future generations. Bill, you talked about how you think the whole category of food and beverage tourism is in its early stages of development for for a lot of areas around Mm -hmm. the world. So that's interesting to hear from someone with your level of experience that you think that it's just getting started. But at the same time, this goes back to the relevance because so many of these destinations are mimicking each other. Exactly. they'll put together a restaurant list that shows 180 cuisines on offer right. and people just want to go for the local specialties. You know, I'm not going to travel to Italy to eat Chinese food. I'm not going to travel to Seoul, Korea to eat Italian food. Yet, mm-hmm. destinations like these try to promote everything they have to everyone. What are your thoughts on this? Well, it's certainly, Eric, I'm not an expert in that particular field. But what I'm, what I'm finding is, is pretty much like you that, so many places are saying, oh, yes, we're a culinary destination. I'm also taking note of, of the research that people like yourself have done where the, the food offerings are uh, influential in the actual destination choice. That didn't seem to me to be near the top of a list of choosing a destination 20 years ago. Would that be right? I think that's the influence of the media shows like Top Chef and Iron Chef and so on have yeah. had a tremendous influence on exciting people about yeah. food, cooking, ingredients, techniques, and also where these places come from. And we have heard many times in marketing that people want experiential travel now. So we want to go see where the peppercorns come from, for right. example. Right. Yep. So uh, that, that goes to what I'm saying is that it, it, it's, it's a new field in, in the extent of the range of it and the power of it in terms of influencing people's destination choice. So the challenge ahead is, you know, I, I just don't think me too is tourism is going to work, that you have to clearly differentiate yourself. What is it that is special about what you have? Is it as you're saying, is is it the uh, the area of origin of the produce? Uh, is it the the people and the chefs who are there? What is the authentic aspect of this place that I'm not going to get in other places in regard to culinary tourism? That's going to be a challenge that's ahead because there's going to be many imitators that come along and try to be what what others are. That's on one one level where food may be the decider in terms of the destination. But increasingly, all places have had to lift their game in terms of the food that they have on offer. Uh, and that people are much more discerning in what they're looking for and are less forgiving. So, yeah, food could still influence, well, it may not be the main 
motivated to go to a location. Uh, if the food is not good at a location, it could lose business for them just as easily. We have seen the quality of food and the variety of food uh, improve dramatically all around mm. the world. Yes. 20 yes. years ago when I moved to Oregon, I was blown away by the food quality. And now everyone's got great food quality, or yep. so it seems. Yep. And I just wanted to make a comment when you were talking before about um, relevance and so on. What we see, especially with regard to food and beverage tourism, there's, there's two things that tourism offices will, will often do. One is that they'll focus on farming. Oh, we've got agritourism. We've got mm -hmm. great farms. Or mm -hmm. they'll brand themselves a gourmet destination when they may not really be. It's, it's kind of the two ends of the spectrum. So the seeds mm -hmm. of cuisine are in agriculture and from great ingredients comes great food. But it seems like they're, they're, a lot of them don't understand what's in the middle. And the middle is the lion's share of the industry. Basically, yes. what's unique and memorable and the reasons that people travel. You know, I don't, I don't particularly want to go see another vineyard. Vineyards kind of mm. start to look the same after the 100th vineyard. Exactly. <laughs> You know, show me the grapes that are unique to your specific area. Mm. So, for example, a couple of years ago, I was in Poland and they had varietals I had never seen before. And I started to learn how, because of climate change, Poland was actually positioning itself to be a major wine producer in Europe. No one's expecting mm. that, but that's what they're working yeah. on. And You're so right. that, I think, is a clever strategy. Yes. And how does that food, wine, beverage thread into the nation or region's story? How can you experience the story of a place where the food and the wine and the beverage help tell part of that story? That's the, another part of it. So that the food industry isn't necessarily separated from the destination management product and experience design aspects of the place so that uh, it's just as integral a part of telling the story as the local museum may be. Or why isn't the food and the beverage in the museum as part of that experience to make it a more holistic experience for the place? And to take it one step forward, Bill, once you have identified the food that is really unique about a region, what next? So, for instance, I was just chatting with um, an oyster farmer in Ireland, on the west coast of Ireland, and he was talking about the pristine waters and the nutrients that go into making flaggy show oysters that are just delicious. And now that you know you have this incredible bounty, what do you do next to get, it, get the word out into the world? Well, I, I, if, as far as the, the location, the place is concerned, uh, among the very important things that need to happen is the place needs to be unified in the way in which it's presenting itself, not only in the communications, but in the concept as well of that um, the, the many elements of the story are integrated together to make a meaningful whole of that, of that, of that story. And that can be in the form of its brand, but it, it also has to be delivered. That promise has to be delivered when people get there. So people have to be more unified and as seamless as possible in the, in the delivery of that experience to visitors. Working closely uh, with their destination marketing organization, but also with themselves and being very vigilant in what's happening online, uh, monitoring the user-generated content that's out there, uh, working with your visitors to try and encourage as much positive coverage in, in, in the social media world and such. But it's, it's, it's dynamic. It's, it's constantly moving. And it's an industry where probably partnerships are, are more important than in any other business.
Absolutely. Bill, you talked about brand promise, and that's actually a really important concept, not just among consumer goods, but also in destination marketing, where people anticipate a destination, what to expect there, and then mm-hmm. realize that once they get there, their anticipations or their expectations were not met. Can you talk a little bit about that disconnect that sometimes happens? Well, it can happen for a lot, a lot of different reasons. We've, we've had situations where we've worked in a community where a political leader has sort of been, yeah, we've got this and this is what should be leading uh, what we present about our community. We're, we've, got a, we've got a great cultural community and that should be what, what leads it, when in fact it's not. And it's always being moderated by the fact that you can do better things closer to home than what they're asking you to travel to their place to do. And that if you're presenting yourself as one thing and the reality is something different, you've got a real disconnect. And in today's connected world, it's going to travel like wildfire. You're asking me the questions, but I'd ask you back. I, I think there's, there's nothing that's more vulnerable to that than, than food. If you're presenting your community uh, in, in a certain way, and if a museum or such isn't quite up to scratch, but food is something that if there's not good food there and good uh, opportunities for experience that go along with it, that can hurt quicker than I think any other element of an itinerary, except for maybe air travel or something like that. But it's something that really hits, hits close to home for people. So yeah, what, what do you think? Well, it's true. All travelers eat and drink. So yeah. if, if you call yourself a golf destination and one party of your group goes golfing and is not impressed, mm-hmm. the other family members don't really do anything about it. Yeah. But if all family members are in the destination and no one has good food, that is a tremendous impact that they're going to share with all their friends, family, and colleagues back home. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it'd be interesting to have a look at Instagram and the, and the comparison of the percentage of food that appears there compared to other destination elements. And it's something that people readily want to talk about and share. A destination can be highly vulnerable if it's not uh, delivering on its promise. Bill, you've had a long and successful career. Looking back, is there anything that you might have done differently or you wish you had known? Well, there's always lots and lots of things that I wish I had known. I, I wish I had known that I should have bought Apple shares back in 1985. <laughs> <laughs> uh, lots of things like that. Um, you, you've constantly got to be on edge to re-educate and um, you know, work on, on, on where the changes are, having an eye for the trends that are there as well. Yeah, I haven't always done it well. Um, you know, we can only uh, hope that uh, in the remaining years that I, I, I'm working that I can uh, continue to look and see what the, the next wave may be. Sure. Do you have a quote or a mantra that you live by? Um, try and keep it real <laughs> as much as possible. And uh, very often when I'm uh, working in in communities, some people chuckle, and I, I just speaking with the client. And uh, one of the things I've learnt uh, is uh, you know, manage the expectations, and it goes also partially back to what Eric was saying about the promise. Yeah, you know, you've got to keep it real, and don't overpromise not just to your customers, but to the people within your community. 
that that's where I'm, I'm particularly meaning about keeping it real and managing their expectations that you're not going to be necessarily the next great you know, food tourism destination and don't try and stake your career that you're going to make the community that way as well, that you've got to keep it real. A good example of part of that was the euphoria leading up to the Sydney 2000 Games. And the mantra we had between ourselves was manage people's expectations. That, that you know, it was like the streets are going to be paved with gold from these people coming here. But that wasn't the reality of what we knew was going to happen. But and it's interesting, since then, you look at many other destinations that are going to be hosting the Olympics and they say the same thing. But it applies on a smaller scale into other communities. Yeah, there's just many challenges when you're working in in small locations to build enthusiasm, but at the same time, making sure that it's realistic. Bill, could you talk a little bit about the local community involvement? You just briefly touched on it, but I think this is one of those things that can be a disconnect from a perspective of economic development. You have the tourism office that wants to promote the area to visitors. You have the local politicians who do not necessarily believe in the value of the tourism office. And then you have the local residents questioning why money is being spent on, as you said, whining and dining. How can this be a win-win-win for the tourism office, for the local government officials, and the residents of the community? It goes back to the point I made before, Eric, that I hate using the term educate uh, because we, I don't want to make it, we're sort of talking down to people, but we have to subtly be educating and informing people all the way we were working on things, including the benefits of doing certain things. And sometimes uh, political leaders uh, may be uh, quite strident in their views at times that not, might not always be well-informed opinions. And so sometimes we have to work in um, illuminating them on some of the benefits and opportunities that may be coming from certain things and at the same time cautioning them on other things and um, similarly with with many stakeholders as well working among those even away from committee meetings in trying to make for a better informed place a better informed community to make better decisions and that's just part of that process that uh, we have to keep working on with them and it takes a long time. Change happens slowly. Exactly, it does. And, and the other thing that the longer I've been involved in this work, Eric, the more that I recognize that community branding is really about change management. It, it's a function of change management. You, you look at all the things that you're looking to change and you're, you're looking to change uh, even um, uh, visitor perceptions. And the aware, we're looking for change on that level, but also we're looking for changes of behavior within the destination as well. And that you have to apply some of those principles of, of change management in there to get people away from doing the same old thing over and over again. So uh, yeah, just another one of those challenges. I think that's brilliant. Change management. I'm going to, I'm going to quote you on that, Bill. Well, <laughs> can you talk about uh, a major success in your life, either career wise or in your personal life and how you went about achieving it? You know, I, I don't always, I don't take the successes so much personally. I've, I've been so lucky to have been working with a lot of other good people. And in the days working with Australia, 
I was working with some of the best minds that were out there at the time in tourism, advertising, public relations, research, and being, I guess my success was being able to be in those positions to absorb so much from those great people. And then rolling that along into, you know, the last 10 years or so when, um, in so many challenges that I saw out there in the communities and such, and I was able to write my book and keep things very simple, keep things simple in the book to help explain concepts that I'd been exposed to, to pass those on into communities and regions and such. So much of what we have to do is educational, as I was saying, and being able to take some of that knowledge that I'd received and parlay that into a book that's now been, as you were saying, um, you know, a bestseller in its category on Amazon for, for more than a decade. And so, yeah, I'll take that as a good achievement, but I couldn't have done that without the help of a lot of other people. Do you have an aha moment in your business, something that transformed you professionally that you'd like to share? It's hard to think of an aha moment. I've always got the antenna up to try and learn new things. But as I was saying, I really enjoyed my time with Australia, with the Australian Tourist Commission. And I, I, I regarded that so often as being like in the flow, I would think. You know, things were just flowing past me all the time. Information, ideas and such, you know. That, that, that helped me assemble so many ideas. There was no single thing. But it was a cumulative effect of so many things that, you know, it, it helped me to um, put together many of the uh, the approaches and philosophies that uh, I, I've now followed for for a number of years. Bill, certainly you have a quote from from someone that you love. Uh, I, I was reading something from that you kind of fashioned from Otto von Bismarck. <laughs> Yeah, a bit random, isn't it? Yeah. Now, well, it goes back to a lot of the things I've been saying about uh, working with communities and working in committees that are uh, very eclectic and lots of uh, competitors and lots of self-interest. But Otto von Bismarck, uh, who was a, a, a German politician a uh, hundred years ago, said that politics is the art of the possible, the attainable, the art of the next best. And uh, I, I took license with that and changed it to say branding places is the art of the possible, the attainable, and the art of the next best. If you're striving for perfection in destination branding, place branding, it's often very hard because of the number of stakeholders who are involved and the processes you have to work through, the, the, the kind of scrutiny that it's under politically from the media, from residents, so that you have to compromise. But the art is to maintain the integrity of what you're trying to do, to make it still as strong as possible while possibly compromising on some elements of it. Compromise works its way into everything we do. So I think that's an important lesson to learn as well. Yeah, exactly. You may have touched on this briefly before, but is there something in the tourism business that bothers you and you wish were different? One of the things that I, I, I'm detecting and speaking to colleagues around the country is the, the increasing political interference in influence that's coming into destination marketing organizations. Some, you know, there, there always needs to be 
a level, a very high level of involvement. But some of it is um, not helpful. Some of it is uh, destructive and it's uh, point scoring. Some of it's pure politics of cutting budgets, trying to cut out entirely tourism offices. Uh, it wasn't so long ago that uh, you know, we were looking toward massive tourism, massive funding cuts for the tourism office in Florida, if you could believe it. Whoa. And that was very much uh, mitigated by, by, by big politics in going in there. And I see that's an unwelcome trend in a number of areas. Certainly that word relevance is coming up time and again during this interview. And the relevance of tourism offices is, uh, is a serious discussion. But to jump to the point where you are looking to totally defund organizations, slash their funding without any meaningful attempt to look at the cost benefit on what they're doing. Um, there's other instances where the media may launch attacks because it never let the, you know, the fact get in the way of a, a good story, might beat up a story that the local tourism office was wasting taxpayers' money uh, hosting journalists and bloggers and television stations to the local uh, wineries and, uh, and restaurants. Well, yeah, if, if you're wanting to promote yourself as a, a, a food and beverage destination, it's not a bad idea to get people in to sample what the product is so they will write about it. There are documents, you can search it in the media these days where that has been happening. And that's not helpful. Just because you might want to beat up a story for your evening news um, is causing economic harm to your community. And they're the kinds of things that I... Uh, and sorry to see is creeping in. Do you think there's a solution or advice that, that we could offer these type of situations? No, I, I think that uh, at, at a national level, the, uh, the Association of Convention and Visitors Bureau called Destinations International, I think it's playing a more proactive role in that, in helping and coming to the defense of some of its members member organizations and communities that are being st uh, struck in some of these circumstances. So it's, uh, it's not isolated. It, it's happening fairly widely. You know, that is, um, it, it's not a good sign. And do you see that happening more in the United States than in other countries? Because I've always observed that other countries tend to understand the benefit of tourism a little bit more than we do in the United States. Yeah, I, I have to say that I, I do find that it, it has been more here, but I haven't scrutinized the international scene as much as I have here. But in my visits to other countries, I was in five countries working last year, I didn't detect it there anywhere near to the same degree. I have seen other situations where uh, programs just get cut for virtually no reason. Um, thinking about one country in Europe in particular that had a, a very interesting uh, national program to promote the use of local foods all throughout destination marketing, institutional food service, consumer awareness, and so on. And then the politician changed and that just completely went out into the trash bin completely, mm -hmm. you know, years worth of work, billions of, of euros spent. And, and overnight someone flipped the switch and said, no, thank you. We're not interested anymore. It, it amazes me. I don't know whether the, the, the situation was ever retrievable, but to understand why that happened, was it a lack of understanding or was it 
political? Was it self-interest in some way? It's very hard to say, Eric. Yeah. But they're the kinds of threats um, that are out there now for the industry that you know, we didn't quite see. It. it was always a problem in getting uh, respect for the benefits that tourism could bring. Some of those rewards have come through, but now it's a rearguard action to defend against uh, random acts of violence almost uh, against the industry that are uh, you know, somewhat destructive. Bill, let's talk a little bit about what you're reading right now. Uh, you shared that you were reading 1491, New Revelations of the Americas Before Columbus, and you're also reading at the same time, like me, I can't read just one book at once, Rise of the Robots, Technology and the Threat of a Jobless Future. Which do you want to tackle first? My good, I'm very slow at both of them, Eric, but um, I, I just find that the whole notion and the, the awareness and awakening to what these continents, North and South America, were like before Columbus. You know, the, the level of sophistication that existed, uh, particularly in, in, in Central America, uh, the, the scale of some of the cities that they've created. In the United States, some of the adobe cities that had been created. It's quite fascinating to see what was existing here and that suddenly we arrived to make things better for them. And I just find it a fascinating read. And when I've finished that one, I'm going to move over into one, I think it's 1493, which is Life After Columbus. I'm very slowly making my way through those. But the rise of the robots was just a shocker to me when I started reading it. And the recognition is that this isn't tomorrow. It's already happened today and it was happening yesterday. And that artificial, not, not so much literally robots, but artificial intelligence has been with us for so long and taking so many, so many jobs. Like just think of a, a barcode and how many, how many jobs that barcode has taken away. The fact that we scan things ourselves at the, uh, at the supermarket through and the artificial intelligence that sits there behind those scans analyzing that would have once taken so many people. It's, uh, it's quite amazing when you start looking and recognizing, we'll start looking at, uh, at driverless cars. What, what's the impact of that likely to be on, on the industry? We start looking at already in, in Japan, of course, a robot hotel. How long is it before uh, coffee shops and such are able to start using some form of, uh, of, of robot in, in terms of, of dispensing the coffee and such? Uh, things that we thought were science fiction are becoming very real and are there. The other issue it raises is what's, what's the social implications of this? What happens when we have 30, 40% of the population don't have jobs? You know, will we have a social wage to pay people? Otherwise, what's going to happen? We're going to be all turning to thieves or something. <laughs> so it's a, it's a very thought-provoking book. It's already happening, the use of robots and artificial intelligence in food service. There are restaurants now where, uh, I mean, even some of the McDonald's, you just order from basically mm, an yeah. And they're... Uh, a couple of years ago, there was a story that someone came up with a machine that makes hamburgers. Yep. Yep. Assembles them for you and you don't have to do anything else. And then I've seen in many airports, uh, just what you order from a tablet right there on the, on the table, you yep. never have to speak to a server. So yep. whereas before a server could maybe handle six to, to 10 tables per person per din per meal service, 
Now, one server can handle 50 tables because everything is automated via a tablet. Yes. There's no yeah. time for interaction. There's no time for storytelling, story sharing, mm. uh, asking the server their, their own favorite places where they like to go bike riding, where they like to, to have coffee. That disappears. And I think that one-on-one -on -one human interaction is part of the reason that we travel. Yep. And, and look, I, I think in, in what you're saying, Eric, therein lies the opportunity as well that there is going to be an opportunity there for that human interaction, it, albeit at a, maybe a premium price. Um, but yeah, you, you can have that conversation. You can have that experience. Um, are we going to be happy with that kind of um, programmed interaction with a, a robot or something, or are we wanting this more uh, personalized treatment? And I think, I think we could, that, that whole issue of this interaction with society as well is going to be one of the big challenges that we face as a society going forward. And I'm seeing the merging of the two. So the bank I go to, I can walk up or drive up to the ATM, push a button, get a live teller, mm. like a live human being interacting yep. with me in real time, but it's still technology. I'm talking to a computer screen. Yes. Yes. Car or standing, it's, it's the strangest experience. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Bill. It was really fascinating chatting with you. It really well, thank you. That's all for this episode of Eat Well, Travel Better, the business of food travel, produced by the World Food Travel Association. Join us next time where we learn from some of the world's most successful people in the food and beverage tourism industry. We'll meet these leaders and examine their secrets of success. We reveal the obstacles and challenges they have faced, along with their solutions and triumphs, and give you ideas and inspirations for many of the same business issues that you may be facing as well. Thank you for joining us today, and until next time, eat well and travel better.